Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Jadri. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's story shows us that when it comes to killers on the run, you can't trust anyone. Please enjoy Old Country Road. The inside of the old Ford Pinto was hot and sticky, and once again the AC unit was blowing tepid air. Damn thing was out of Freon. Amanda rolled down her window, reluctantly removing the only barrier between her and the muggy night air. The hair that had fallen out of her messy bun stuck to the back of her neck, and her shoulders and arms gleamed with a slick sheen of sweat. It was late, later than she had intended to be out on this old country road in backwoods Georgia. She'd left the trailer park an hour earlier, after Kelly, her 10-year-old daughter, had finally fallen asleep, creeping out quietly so as not to wake her. After all, it was a school night and a work night, and Amanda herself had to be back in bed soon if she was going to get a decent night's sleep. Amanda glanced at her cell phone. Midnight. A voice crackled through the radio announcing the news at the top of the hour, the only sound cutting through the silence of the night. Thanks for tuning into WKLR. Here are our top headlines this hour. The bus union worker strike continues for a fourth day as negotiations break down with municipal authorities. The Parks and Rec Commission has scheduled a series of public information and comment meetings on their 10-year plan, and the fire that gutted the old Windmill Church last week has been declared an arson. In a press conference yesterday, Police Chief William Horn assured the public that adequate resources were being committed to investigating the arson, despite many of the county's officers being tasked with a country road killer case. The authorities are still seeking the public's assistance with any information about the series of brutal murders across the Tri-County area in the past six months. As the news faded to the hottest tracks on the country charts, Amanda's mind stayed on the killings that had terrified everyone in a 50-mile radius. The killer struck every few weeks, murdering people late at night on lonely roads. There have been eight victims so far, including two couples, each one shot between the eyes with a 12-gauge shotgun, half their heads blown clean off. The victims were all found either in their cars or right next to their car, pulled off on the side of a country road. There was never any evidence of a struggle, no sign that they had been run off the road and none of them were parked in a place that you would expect people to park. They had definitely been driving somewhere and then pulled over, but no one could figure out why they stopped. Did the killer chance upon them by luck? Or was the killer able to make them pull over? The killings seemed completely random. The victims hadn't been robbed or sexually assaulted, and there was apparently no connection between any of them, which made things even harder for the police and scarier for the public. Amanda's grandmother had forbid her from leaving the trailer park after dark, warning her that the old country killer had returned after a 20-year hiatus. Two decades earlier, nearly a dozen local victims had perished in exactly the same way as they were now, all found shot between the eyes, left in or around their cars in the dead of the night. The killer had never been caught, but as suddenly as the murders had started, they stopped. Amanda appreciated her grandmother's concern, but Nana went to bed at 8 p.m. and what Nana didn't know couldn't hurt her. Amanda knew these roads well enough, having moved in with her grandmother as a kid after her own mother took off with her latest boyfriend. 
For days, Amanda hadn't even known that she'd been abandoned. She was so used to Ma never being home at night. Always out, always partying. Ma would show up eventually in the mornings, sometimes early enough to see Amanda off to school, and sometimes not. The last time she saw her, Ma had kissed her on the forehead and told her to sleep tight, that she'd be back soon. After a few days, Amanda realized that she'd never see or hear from Ma again. When Amanda's teacher realized that the nine-year-old was living alone, she contacted the police and they tracked down her father, the father that she'd never known. She moved in with him, but it was clear from the start that he wasn't cut out to take care of a kid. She hated being with him and was relieved when she finally got to leave and live with Nana a year later. And that's where she grew up, in Nana's beaten up old trailer. Amanda had dreamed of moving to the city when she was 18, of escaping the low country and living in civilization. But here she was, 27 years old, stuck in the same trailer park as her Nana. Stuck because she got pregnant at 16 thanks to Tommy Puckett, who still lived four trailers over, but didn't so much as acknowledge her after he found out she was having his baby. Amanda was jolted back to the present as her car hit a rut in the road, dipped and jumped with a groan. Her cell phone flew off her lap and landed at her feet. She gently pressed the brake to slow the car down as she reached around the floor mat to feel for the phone and found it relieved. The last thing she wanted to do was stop, especially in this spot. Everyone knew it was a dead spot. Radio signals died out here, and so did cell phone signals. The car's dim headlights illuminated the dirt road before her about 10 feet before fading out, but she could still see enough to make out the grove that she was entering, a grove of ancient southern oaks draped in Spanish moss. The massive trees grew from both sides of the road, leaning towards each other forming a silent canopy dozens of feet above her head in the dark, and from their branches hung the eerie gray curtains of Spanish moss that personified the low country region. When Amanda was a child, the moss terrified her, especially at night. The long ghostly strands looked like silently waving spirits, or ephemeral arms ready to snatch up anyone who wandered too close. Her fear of them finally ended when her grandmother told her the legend behind the moss. Nana whispered the story one night as they cuddled together in her trailer, telling her of the legend that spoke of an evil and brutal Spanish pirate named Gores Gaz, who trawled these shores hundreds of years ago. One day Gores had spotted a beautiful young girl, only 15 years old, the daughter of an Indian chieftain, and he declared that he had to have her. When the girl's father tried to intervene in the evil captain's plans, Gores pulled out his sword to kill the old man. The daughter, however, jumped in front of her father and made Gorez a deal. If Gorez spared her father's life, she would give him a chance to chase her. And if he caught her, she would be Gorez's forever. The rest of the legend Nana recited to Amanda in the form of a poem, and she'd never forgotten it. The Indian maid was sore afraid and fled this bearded brute. She sped over hill and field and glade with Gorez in pursuit. At last the maiden climbed a tree, the Spaniard did the same. The lass was bent on being free, but Gorez desired his claim. She balanced on a slender limb, then dove into the brook. She much preferred a midnight swim to this bearded Spanish crook. The troubles of Gorez began, his naughty plans were queered. He snags the whiskers of his chin, and the branches hold his beard. The Indian maiden thus is free. Gorez's life a loss, but his beard lives on for you to see, 
as dangling Spanish moss. Amanda felt a smug satisfaction every time she thought of the evil Gorez getting caught in the mighty oaks forever. The moss was a symbol of divine justice, nothing to be scared of. She loved the Spanish moss and the old oaks and the longleaf pines out here, but their shade still didn't provide any respite from the sweltering humidity that rose from the coastal marshlands due east of them. Tonight was definitely not the kind of night to be without air conditioning. Sucking in the thick, wet air felt like she was being waterboarded. And yet, as her car rolled slowly under the beards of moss, she rolled up her window, feeling exposed to whatever might be lurking out there in the silent night. As the song on the radio turned into gibberish white noise, a shiver ran through her despite the heat. She glanced at her phone. Not a single bar. A few minutes later, she released a long exhale as she emerged from the grove where everything went dead and checked her phone again. Still no bars. Maybe she'd pick up the signal another quarter mile down the road. She rolled down her window again, knowing it was absurd to think that might help her connect to a cell tower, but hey, it couldn't hurt. She was checking her phone for the fourth time when she first saw the lights, both in her rearview mirror, but also flashing around her and beyond the car. Red, blue, and white. A cop. Nana's voice rang in her head. You know, the cop could be a killer. That Golden State killer guy, he turned out to be a cop. That would explain why people just pull over for him. No signs of any struggle. Who'd be suspicious about a police officer? These poor people, they can't imagine they're about to get murdered. Amanda's foot lightened up on the gas, but she didn't stop. Why the hell did this cop have his lights on? She hadn't done anything wrong. She felt a knot form in her stomach and her throat began to tighten. Should she pull over? She peered ahead at the unpaved road. There wasn't a shoulder to move on to, but in all honesty, even if she stopped in the middle of the road, it wasn't like she'd be blocking any other cars. She hadn't seen anyone for miles. This was a back road rarely traveled. What, she wondered, was the officer doing here, and where had he come from? Maybe he was standing on the side of the road in the dark and she just passed him without noticing. Or maybe he was far back down the road and just catching up to her now. Fuck, Amanda muttered to herself, not sure what to do. She wouldn't hit a real road, one with streetlights, for another six miles or so. Should she keep going until she got there and then pull over? Would he follow her that far if she didn't stop? She didn't have to contemplate that option much further when the first whoop of a police siren startled her. Okay, so now it was both flashing lights and the siren. Clearly the cop was pissed off that she hadn't stopped. Amanda looked at her phone again. A tiny circle with a slash through it stared back at her from the top right corner of the screen. Still no signal. If she stopped now, could anyone even trace her to where she was, she wondered. She looked up into her rearview mirror only to be blinded. The police car was right up behind her now, nearly touching her bumper. Slowly, Amanda pulled her foot from the gas and pressed the brake pedal as she steered her car as far right as she could get on the dirt lane. Amanda turned the key and the car went quiet, the staticky DJ from the radio now also silenced. She instinctively began rolling her window back almost all the way up, even as the heat pressed down and perspiration beaded above her mouth and on her temples. She reached for the bottle of water rolling around in the next seat and took a swig, the water salty from the sweat that had dried on her lips. The lights from the car behind her kept flashing around and around, red, blue, white 
red, blue, white. It suddenly occurred to her, what if the car behind her wasn't even a real police car? She had heard of cases in which men, it was always men, had gotten a hold of fake police lights and sirens to pull women over and attack them. Impersonating a police officer was no new crime, but now you could get anything off the internet, things that were much more impressive than a fake badge. Amanda turned in her seat to see if she could get a look at the car pulled up behind her, but saw only the flashing police lights, headlights, and the vague outline of a vehicle. The headlights weren't high enough to be an SUV or truck, so it was probably a sedan. That didn't guarantee it was a cop car, though. A minute ticked by, then another and another. Her heart raced as she waited for the driver of the car behind her to finally walk up to her window. That, she thought, could be an opportunity. Maybe she should turn her engine back on and hit the gas when the officer, if it was an officer, walked up to her car. Amanda reached for a key and then stopped. If she turned on the car now, it would look suspicious. Besides, even if she raced away, her beat-up Pinto couldn't break 65 on a good day. Amanda crossed her arms and squeezed her eyes shut. It was okay. It would all be okay. This was just a routine stop. Maybe one of her taillights was out. The officer was probably back there taking their sweet time running her plates. That was all. She needed to calm down. Her eyes flew open at the sound of three hard raps on her window. As she looked up, an industrial strength flashlight glared back at her. Once again, she was blinded. She couldn't see the face behind the flashlight, but made out the lower your window gesture made by the person's hand. Amanda cracked open her window an inch and squinted through the opening. Ma'am, can you please roll your window down? The voice was authoritative and deep. Amanda reached for the manual hand crank and then stopped. Uh, I'm sorry, I I'm not sure I should. Could you? Do you mind showing me your badge? She asked apologetically, even though she was not at all feeling apologetic. She was feeling frantic, but hoped that he couldn't tell. The man lowered his flashlight, and as he leaned towards her, Amanda could finally make out his face. He looked like he was in his 30s, pale and fleshy-looking, his eyes mere dark dots above a soft round nose and meaty lips. He wore dark blue shirt sleeves and had a shiny gold badge and a name tag pinned to his broad chest. He looked her in the eyes from outside the window and tapped at his badge, but it was too dark to make out anything written on it or even make out his name. She could hear him breathing heavily and saw that his closely shaven head was gleaming with sweat. Shouldn't you? I mean, aren't you supposed to have a hat? Amanda asked louder than she meant to. The man straightened up and took a step back to look at her. After slowly moving his flashlight up and down the length of her car, he responded, Well, ma'am, it's a hot night. Now please lower your window. Goosebumps spread across Amanda's arms as she tried to steady her breathing. She slowly shook her head at him and said, No, look, I mean, I don't know why you stopped me. You haven't told me. I can't even see your name or credentials properly. And well, I mean, it's late at night and I'm alone and I just don't feel safe right now. The man stepped back towards her door and putting one arm on the top of the roof, leaned down again towards the crack in the window. Ma'am, we're checking all cars roaming around these parts after 10 p.m. You heard about what's going on? Amanda blinked at him. The murders. There's been a bunch of killings in the past few months on back roads in the Tri-County area. It's not safe to be out and about. Can I ask where you're headed? I'm just, I'm just going to see my cousin in Darien. She's not feeling well, so I was just dropping off some food for her. He nodded and licked his lips. 
still looking her in the eye, and then turned to shine his flashlight in her back seat. Where's the food? I don't see anything in there. Was he serious? Amanda looked at him incredulously and replied, Jesus, it's just some cans of soup. They're in the trunk. This is fucking ridiculous. The man stood straight suddenly and barked, Hey, there's no need for profanities, ma'am. I'm just trying to do my job here, trying to keep people like you safe. He paused and looked around as if he was checking to see if anyone else was headed towards them. And then he continued, Okay, ma'am, I'm going to need your license and registration. You can just slide them through the window. I understand if you're nervous. He took a step back, one hand on his hip. His other hand held the flashlight, which pointed down now, and Amanda could make out his shoes. Light brown leather. That didn't seem right. She'd only ever seen local police wear standard-issue black shoes. Should she drive away, just gutted out of there? Every fiber in her body was on high alert, and she suddenly had a feeling that only one of them would make it out of this situation alive. Amanda didn't move a muscle, didn't reach for her purse or the dashboard. She sat frozen, gripping the steering wheel, still not taking her eyes off the man. She noticed the outline of a holster on his hip, but couldn't tell if there was a gun in it. Ma'am, I asked for your license and registration, he repeated firmly. Amanda wiped a trickle of sweat making its way into her eye. Waves of hot and cold flashed through her body. There was no way she was handing over anything that would identify her or where she lived. She turned her head and sat staring ahead her lips pressed into a thin line, her fingers growing numb as they dug into the worn leather that the steering wheel was wrapped in. Her pulse was pounding. She could feel every beat of her heart in her ears. The man shone the light directly at her face again and barked. Ma'am, state your name for me. No way. She wasn't going to give him anything. After a moment, Amanda looked at him and responded, Didn't you run my tags when you pulled me over? You should know exactly who I am if you did. The man reached for the door handle and tried it. Thankfully, she never drove with her door unlocked. He shook his head, frustrated, his face now beat red. I didn't run your plates, ma'am. I just told you. I stopped you to make sure you're safe, to tell you it's dangerous to be out here at night. Now, however, ma'am, I need you to step out of the vehicle. Amanda fumbled with her phone. Maybe if she called for help, he'd leave. Maybe she could check with 911 to see if he was even a cop. She pressed the numbers and hit send. The words, network not available, flashed back at her. Ma'am, it is a dead zone. You're not going to get any signal out here. Just please step out of your vehicle. We don't have to make this any more difficult. Amanda reached up to touch the inside of the roof of her car, whispering a prayer. Years ago, when her daughter first learned of the Buhag, an evil, shape-shifting spirit from Gullah Geechee lore that haunted those parts, the child began having night terrors. This went on for months until Amanda consulted with a blind old man who lived in a small camper in the swamp. He knew hoodoo, her nana told her, and whatever it is that got to Kelly needed some strong hoodoo. The withered old man listened to Amanda tell him what her daughter was going through, and told her that Kelly was being haunted by a boo hag, and then he asked for $20 to tell her the cure. All she had to do to get rid of the evil spirit, he told her, was paint the inside of every roof they had, whether it was all the rooms in their home or the insides of their cars, a haint blue color. The blue color would confuse the boohag into thinking it had hit a body of water, which everyone knows boohags can't cross, or that they had fallen into the sky itself. The boohag would move on then, looking for another victim to terrorize. 
That's how you kept them out, the old man told her, and it was why homes across the region had their patios, roofs, windowsills, and thresholds painted in the soft blue hue. Amanda had brought home two gallons of haint blue paint and spent a weekend slathering it on the inside of the ceilings of their trailer and the car. The calming Robin's blue was now chipped and flaking off, but it had done the job back then. Kelly's night terrors had stopped. The boohag had gone away. Ever since, Amanda considered the color a protective force field, and now, as she sat in the dark on an abandoned country road, she rubbed the blue flakes between her fingers and hoped that this boohag with a flashlight outside her car would move along too. The man was no longer at her door. He had moved about five feet in front of her car and was speaking into a mic clipped by his neck. Amanda could hear him mumbling, but didn't hear any response, not even a faint crackly radio sound to tell her that anyone was on the other side. He watched her as she watched him hang his flashlight on his belt and return to her window. This is the last time I'm asking, ma'am. Step out of the vehicle now. His voice boomed and a hot splash of tears came running down Amanda's cheeks. Her body erupted in shakes and she reached for the car key and turned it. As the engine sputtered back to life, the man pulled a gun from his hip and aimed it directly at her head. Do not make another move. Do not turn off the car. Put one hand on the steering wheel where I can see it and slowly unlock the car door with your other hand now. Amanda slowly put her right hand on the top of her steering wheel and reached for the car door with the other. She pulled up the lock and then raised her hand in the air to show that it was empty. The man quickly pulled open the door and yanked Amanda out of her seat, then turned and pushed her against the car. Hands on your head, spread your legs, he barked as he moved his hands over her thin tank top and jean shorts, searching for a weapon he knew could not have been hidden anywhere on her. My God, he's filling me up, Amanda thought, tears silently dripping down her chin. She looked to her right, trying to make out his car, trying to still figure out if he was a real cop or not, if he was driving a real police car or not. She suddenly felt a warm stream pour down her legs and whimpered. What the fuck, did you just... The man grabbed her by the arm, opened the back seat of her car, and shoved her in, closing the door behind her. He leaned into the front seat and turned off her car. He grabbed her purse from the passenger side, then stepped away to rummage through it, her car keys still in his hand. After a few seconds, he growled, stay put, and stalked back to his car. Amanda rocked back and forth in her wet shorts, reeking of urine, humiliated. This is what happened on the nights her mother left her alone, and later on the nights that her father crept into her room. She would cower in bed, too terrified to get up despite a bursting bladder, and end up pissing all over herself. When fear overcame her, even as an adult, it still happened, no matter where she was. This was her body telling her that she should be scared, that she was in danger. After what seemed like an eternity, the car door opened and Amanda looked up at the light beaming down at her face again. Okay, ma'am, out of the car again. Amanda dragged her legs out of the back seat, leaving an ammonia-soaked wet spot where she'd been sitting. Snot ran out of her nose, and she didn't even have a sleeve to wipe it on. I need to check your trunk. Please open it for me. He handed her back the keys and put her purse in the front seat. Why? I don't understand. Don't you need a search warrant or something, Officer Colby? She was close enough now, her head chest level to him, to make out his name tag. No, I don't need a warrant when there's probable cause, so open the trunk or I'll do it for you. Amanda tried to smile through her tears and a small laugh escaped her. Wow, this is a lot over a few cans of soup. 
A thousand thoughts raced through her head as she moved around to the back of the car. Could she open the trunk without turning, without taking her eyes off him? Should she run? Could she outrun him? No, she thought. It was too late. She couldn't stop the inevitable. She fumbled trying to get the key in the hole even though the flashlight was trained steadily on the trunk. The trunk lid creaked open and Amanda looked over her shoulder at the man. He was pointing the flashlight at her but looking away over his right shoulder, his eyes squinting down the dark lane. Was he checking to see if someone was coming? She looked back too at the pitch dark country road. Her heart raced. No one was coming. As the man looked back towards her, the barrel of a 12-gauge shotgun met him between the eyes. The flashlight dropped to the ground. The last thing the officer saw in the flashing red, blue, and white light of his police cruiser was Amanda brace the butt of the weapon against her shoulder and cock her head to the right. The sulfuric smell of the gunpowder lingered in the air. She loved the smell. A woman's voice crackled from life from the officer's CB mic. 412 check-in, 412 check-in. Amanda turned back towards the open trunk and placed her father's 1995 Remington Peerless Field shotgun back under the burlap where she always kept it. Check-in 412, check-in. The voice persisted. Back then, it had looked to everyone that Papa was murdered by the same country road killer that had struck so many other victims, shot between the eyes by the same weapon, his body found inside his car on a dark road. Amanda had carried his gun, the one he used to murder his victims, out into the woods and buried it, and she didn't go back to retrieve it until Kelly was born. A low tone from the CB mic interrupted her thoughts. As much as she hated him, she had her father's blood, and eventually her urges caught up to her. Code 55, officer in trouble, last known location, corner of Edgewood and Hickory. Failure to check up, all cars mark and route. Amanda stepped over Officer Colby's body and looked at the dribble of urine outside her car. It happened every time. She kicked dirt over the wet spot and then smoothed it over with her foot. There, that should do it. She got back into her car, touched the roof, and kissed her hand. Copy, car 414, car 508, copy, copy car 364. Amanda pulled wipes from the dashboard and cleaned her face. She blew out her snotty nose and wiped the mascara from under her eyes. Then she turned her car around and headed home. This was not what she had planned, but he'd given her no choice. And she was satisfied. This killing, like the others, was yet another warning to scare people into staying home at night with their children where they belonged. This story was inspired by a series of terrifying disappearances that happened over the course of decades off of a road that I have lived near most of my entire adult life. It's not an old country road, though. It's a pretty well-traveled federal road that runs all the way from Florida and ends in Maryland, right by me, Route 29. I remember being a young mother who traveled that route at least twice a week as I drove back and forth from Virginia, where I lived with my ex, to Baltimore, where my parents lived. The first known murder by the killer who became dubbed the Route 29 Stalker happened in 1996, when 25-year-old Alicia Reynolds of Baltimore, Maryland, left home to meet her mother to go shopping one early morning and never arrived. Her car was found abandoned the same evening, but her body wasn't discovered for two months, not until some folks saw vultures circling a field in Culpeper, Virginia. 
Now, the police had learned early on that Alicia had been seen the morning she disappeared, pulled over on Route 29, talking to a tall man with a dark pickup truck. Later, other women, up to 20 women, also told the police that a man in a similar truck had tried to get them to pull over as they were driving along Route 29. He would drive next to them, flash his lights, honk his horn and point, and basically scare women driving alone into thinking that something was very wrong with their car. The ones who ignored him reported that he got enraged and raced off when they wouldn't pull over. Since Alicia's murder, the police have linked up to 18 unsolved disappearances of women and girls from Route 29. Now, I remember hearing all kinds of warnings in those days, warnings not to pull over for anyone. I remember warning my little sister and warning friends and driving with dread when I couldn't avoid Route 29. Women were terrified, and there were even rumors that the killer posed as a police officer and used fake police lights and a siren to get women driving alone to pull over. And if you don't know how common it is for killers to pose as cops, well, you can just Google that to find out. I was never driving alone, though. My little girl was always strapped in her car seat in the back, but she was so tiny that she probably couldn't be seen from the next lane over. And having her with me just made me even more anxious, of course. Especially because, guess what? Alicia Reynolds' murderer, the Route 29 stalker, is still out there, having never, ever been caught. Tonight's story was written by Rabia Chaudhry. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Podcast.